Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Thank you, everybody. I'm not good with microphones. I move around too much. Can everybody hear me all right? Yeah. So first of all, get it all out. First off, thank you for coming. How many of you know my work? How many of you know All Over Coffee? All right, fair amount of you. For those of you who don't, All Over Coffee was a comic strip that was not funny. It was a comic strip without the comic. It ran in the San Francisco Chronicle from 2004 to 2015. It was a very odd feature. It was what I considered a deconstructionist. It was a very arty type of endeavor. Um, I came in on this very sort of strange moment in the Chronicle, in, in the newspaper business. It was right before newspapers started changing. And Phil Bronstein was running the Chronicle and he was interested in tapping into the Bay Area, this is in San Francisco, into the Bay Area's creative culture. And so they were trying a lot of things. They were trying new writers every week. He was interested in different series. So I had this opportunity, basically like a, a two year window in which I was invited in to do something. And in the beginning, they told me, you can be out any day, any day. You have six months. You have six months to prove yourself. And so I called it Art Boot Camp. I was publishing four days a week. I would get up in the morning, I would look in the newspaper, and I would see the letters that had been published about how everybody, how terrible the people thought the pieces were. And then I'd see all the emails saying, ignore the letters today. And then I'd get to work, and by noon I'd send in my piece to publish for the next day, and then get back to work for the next one. The great thing about the letters is that the Chronicle said, listen, we have to publish all the negative letters. Because if we don't give voice to the people who are angry, they're just going to get angrier. And people always write when they're upset. So watch what happens. And they were very, they had great insight on this, because what happened is, you know, all the people who loved it were just sitting back, enjoying it. All the people who hated it were writing in, and then the people would, who loved it would read the hate letters and then write letters hating the people who hated it. So there, began, there was this whole thing going on in the letters section for the first year that I was in the newspaper. I bring this up because it was very, this, this new book, it's called On to the Next Dream, which is effectively the end of the series, All Over Coffee. It was the last series of pieces that I wrote. And All Over Coffee was a dream come true for me because I had an opportunity to write and to draw and to have an audience, and that immediacy of being in the newspaper, of being able to make something one morning, finish it, turn it in, and the next morning get up and read people's responses was amazing. I mean, the, the internet allows that, of course, but it, this was a very different forum. You know, there's something about being in a newspaper, there's, there's a legitimacy about that context. And so, and it wasn't that I changed the work because of how people were responding, but to know what they were thinking. And then the next thing that happened was about six months later, I started getting these emails from people who said, I hated it when it started, but I was walking down the street the other day and I looked up and the light was hitting this corner, corner of a building and I thought of one of your pieces and suddenly I got it. 
And it was amazing because all of these stories started coming in at once. Strangers were writing, and, and, I, and I, so I decided that a lot of work that we do, they're like little time bombs. We don't realize it, but we're putting these things out into the world, and they sort of gestate, and they bloom at different times. They go off at different times in people's minds. And, uh, and I would have these experiences that I would be, I, I have a thing about doing the dishes. Whenever I'm like stuck on a problem, I go and do the dishes. And so I would be doing the dishes and I'd think about a film that I had seen years ago or something in a scene, one scene from that movie would flash in my head and I'd be like, oh, I get that now. I finally understand what that scene was really trying to do. And I realized that's what Oliver Coffee was doing. And, and it gave me the sense of, oh, it has about a six month period that it takes for people to be able to get it. And this dream, you know, and I ran with it for 12 years. And then my wife and I were evicted from our flat in San Francisco that we had lived in for 10 years. Now, I want to preface to say, like, the thing about an eviction, if you live anywhere other than a major metropolitan area in this current age, an eviction is a shameful thing. You, if you've get, gotten evicted from your home, you've done something seriously wrong. Right, like you haven't paid your bills, you've got like farm animals roaming through your kitchen. You've just, you've kind of screwed up. But if you live in a major city, you can be a perfectly respectable person paying your bills, you can have money, and you can still lose your home. And so here I was, I had been doing the work that I loved, I had been pursuing my dream, living my dream for well over a decade, and then I lose my home. And what it did is it changed my perspective on what it meant to be successful. I had a savings account. I mean, 20 years ago, the idea of being a professional artist and writer and having a savings account, the, the, the 20 year ago me would have been like, I've made it, done, done, right? Money and I get to do my own work? Well, I didn't have a million dollars in the bank though. You know, so that's the problem. Like I couldn't then just go out and buy a home in, in the Bay Area. The point is, is that it changed my perspective and it, and it spawned this book. And more than spawning this book, what it really taught me was how to take a an emotional experience and turn it into a creative work. And, and I've been thinking a lot about this, this idea of, maybe some of you have heard this, I've, I've heard authors talk about how every creative person has one story that they tell and that they spend their lifetime writing that story over and over again. And they don't even know it. Sometimes it takes them half their life to figure out that they have one theme that they've been pursuing. It takes someone else to point it out to them or they figure it out, but ultimately we're writing one story. And I've been thinking about this idea. I'm like, what is my one story? And I think ultimately it's about creativity. And I know that's, that's it's simple, it's, maybe it's broad, but all of my work is really about taking observing the environment and then turning it into something and how do I do that? And the experience of writing this book meant that I had to take this very emotional experience and sit down each week and turn it into a story. Because, you know, if I were to just write about like, hey, I'm being evicted and this totally sucks and like all my emotions and it's terrible, blah, blah, that isn't enjoyable for the reader. That's not enjoyable for you. The, the analogy that I came up with is if you're walking down the street and there's somebody on top of a building and they're tearing out their clothes and they're screaming about how screwed up the world is, you don't think, oh, what happened to that poor person? You think, they're kind of crazy. So the idea is how, did, how do you create empathy? You have to make the viewer 
under, or the reader under, feel the same way you do. And that was my job. I understood that, that was my job, is to take these emotions and to turn it into a, an experience for you, the reader, to feel the same way, to say, oh, this is crazy. And so I call this an absurdist novella. And my goal became to start each chapter, I began with a seemingly normal situation that then I amped up to a crazier and crazier level. So that it goes beyond reality, because that's how I felt. That's what I felt was happening in my life. And then, and I had a very simple plot line, right? Like, character loses his home, character needs to resolve. Having lost him, either, you know, it has to move out, find another place. So it gave me a great opportunity to write progressive chapters. I'm going to read three chapters for you. How many of you have read it? Have any of you read it? Okay, good. That's good. We will do questions. So there's an introductory chapter, but I'm going to read you the first one. And then I'll tell you a little bit about each of them as well. I was sitting in a cafe, because that's something I like to do, eating an egg sandwich and reading a noir detective novel on my iPad. It was a Tuesday, mid-afternoon, and having just gotten a haircut, I was looking about as respectable as I can get. A woman sat down at the table to my left and began muttering to herself. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see her glancing my way, and when I made the mistake of turning my head, she barked, usurper. I looked at her and blinked. You think you can just waltz into the city and do whatever you want? She was about my age, early to mid-forties, and looked like someone I might know. But just because you type a few ones and zeros into a computer doesn't mean you have the right to jack up my rent and throw me onto the street. Tell me, what do you think this place will be like after you've driven out all the people who make it great? To my right, I heard laughing and turned to see two young guys in gym shorts, hoodies, and flip-flops watching us. When I met their eyes, they buried their faces into their phones. I tried to return to my buddy Philip Marlowe. He had a murder to solve and had just gotten sapped by a crooked cop. But with eye daggers of self-righteousness shooting at me from one side and sniggers of entitlement from the other, I couldn't focus. So I got my coffee to go and left. Outside, a pair of men dressed in identical picnic table plaid shirts were pointing at the building. Well, let's just tear it down, one said, then we can do whatever we want. I had to step into the gutter to get around them. A car alarm screamed, so I dove back onto the sidewalk only to have a toothless man ram me with the shopping cart and tell me I'm in the way. I returned home to find an eviction notice taped to my door. I couldn't believe it. A week earlier, the landlord had told me she was raising the rent beyond the legal limit, and I'd attempted to negotiate, but to respond with an eviction? I'd been in the place ten years and never once asked for anything. I'd attended her father's funeral. It was absurd. I lifted my key to the lock, but found my hand shaking so wildly that I looked around in embarrassment. What was I going to do? Losing my home was bad enough, but this was my studio, too, my livelihood. Without it, how was I going to... And that's when I noticed that my neighbor was having an open house. There was a line out the door, but I managed to squeeze inside. Asking prices, one million, I heard the real estate agent call out. She was standing on the kitchen counter, strapped into a square-shouldered business suit, scanning the crowd with eyes like an airport x-ray machine. But of course it will go for hundreds of thousands more, a man said, pushing me aside with a baby stroller. Well, obviously, said the agent. A million is just how much it takes for me to treat you like you actually exist. And here I am, the man said, throwing his arms wide, gesturing grandly to the stroller, as if he were presenting a newborn king. 
That's when I saw that the carriage was filled, not with a baby, but with bundles of crisp $100 bills. Cupping my hands to my mouth, I asked, how many bedrooms? And when a shrill, ha, erupted from across the room, I turned to see a bird-legged woman in a baseball cap and extra tight workout clothes, shaking her head at me. It's not the apartment that's for sale, she said, as if I were a potted plant that had miraculously learned to speak. We're here to bid on that. And like a suburban samurai brandishing her sword, she whipped a yoga mat from over her shoulder and pointed to a cardboard box in the corner. Instantly, the stroller guy darted over and hopped inside the box. It's perfect, he said, squealing and squatting down like a fat house cat squeezing into a coffee cup. And now it's mine, mine, mine. Okay, so I want to tell you about the first part of that, which is that sitting in the cafe is, is something that happened. I was sitting there and I, I had gotten a haircut and I was reading on my iPad and there was something about the fact that I looked relatively clean cut, which doesn't happen for me very often. And that I had you know, a digital device rather than say like a regular book. And this sort of left and right happened. And for a couple months, the, the eviction had been looming and I'd been trying to write about it, and I was trying to write it about it in a first-person point of view, and, and I couldn't do it in a way that I felt that was successful. And I wrote this little story because it was, it just, it was hap what happened. And uh, I published it in the Chronicle as an Oliver Coffee piece, and people started writing me, and they said, oh, you hit the tenor perfectly. I got all this, this like, oh, this is, and I realized this is the basis of my story. So I began from there, and that's when it began amping up. Uh, to absurdity to piece after piece. So I want to jump ahead and I just want to read the last part because I think that it's um, actually have I, does it feel absurd enough? You, you know it. Does it feel should there should be something in between? Maybe. I'm bad at knowing. Actually, so there's something else I want to say, which is each chapter really draws from the news and draws from events that were going on. I tried to address each aspect of, of what it meant to be evicted because I realized that here I was, uh, I, you know, I'm a middle class white guy in his prime uh, who is essentially running his own business, right? Like I'm making a living as an artist. Like what, what right essentially did I have to be writing and talking about eviction. And, um, and so I felt in a very precarious place because I also had a, a public voice and I was hearing from uh, you know, uh, eviction advocate people who were fighting for, for tenants' rights and they were saying, oh, you, know, you should be the face of this. And I really did not want to be the face of it because uh, ultimately I think if anyone is going to dedicate themselves to being an advocate of that sort, they have to be willing to see it all the way through. And I knew that essentially I was, I, the reason I was talking about it was because I was going through it. And, it. and it took a lot of sort of looking in the mirror to say, you know, what truly is my commitment to this idea as a cause? And so I'm writing about it because it's my experience, but am I out here to sort of help every tenant? And, you know, it's hard to say, well, no, I'm not. Like you, you at least myself, I felt like I was potentially not being a good citizen. I was, was letting people down, but at the same time, it was more honest to address the fact that I wouldn't see it all the way through. Because if I didn't, then, then I would be hurting the potential cause. Let other people take, that, uh, take up those arms. But that said, I, it, it, 
it allowed me to, to address other points of view, and I think this chapter does it well. I decided to try Oakland. There was a bungalow I was willing to consider listed for 950000 which seemed like an unfathomable large amount of money, especially for having to leave the city, but I needed to feel I was exploring all my options. I rode BART under the bay, and when I got to the address, I stood out front with mixed emotions. I was relieved to see that of all the houses on the block, it wasn't the burned-out shack or the rotting box peeling, of peeling paint, yet at the same time, was depressed to know that despite it being a nice enough-looking little home, this was, in the end, all I would get for a million dollars. And that was even if I could come up with a million dollars. Anyway, I thought, at least it has a driveway. Still, I didn't go in. I stayed on the sidewalk. As with every other listing I'd seen, hungry buyers were swarming the place, probing every crevice, acting as if they already owned it, while everyone else was just a squatter, begging to be shot. Why do you even want to live in this neighborhood, a deep, melodic voice said. I turned to see an older African-American man with a trim gray beard sidling up next to me. He appeared to be in his late 60s and wore a freshly pressed pink button-down shirt tucked into a pair of crisply, crisply creased gray pants. He and I were just standing there on the sidewalk, side by side, arms crossed, watching the scene, when someone spotted him from the porch and yelled, Look out! I think he has a gun! At which the man snorted. You can leave your hoodie at home, he said, but people still want to fight. I'm just trying to find a place to live, I said. Oh yeah? Being pushed out of the city, huh? I said yes while we watched a beefy guy with a baby strapped to his chest accidentally state his credit card, state his credit report to the real estate's agent's forehead. What gets me, the man said, is how you city folk complain about the entitled techies forcing you out, only to come over here thinking you have every right to move in. I turned to look at him. He continued looking at the house. He was right, of course, but these weren't easy subjects to broach. Economics, race. I was a middle-class white guy. Pretty much anything I had to say would probably be wrong. Just then, a helicopter flew overhead, one of those service birds that the Forest Service uses to drop water on fires, trailing what looked like an enormous boulder underneath. I was trying to understand how a chopper could manage to lift something that big, let alone stay aloft carrying such a load, when suddenly the boulder dropped. We barely had time to blink before it hit. The wave rippled through the ground as if someone had tossed a cinder block into a still pond. It lifted the man and me and carried us further inland, towards those last stops on the BART line that you see on the map but never really visit. I'd fallen on my butt and was struggling not to be thrown completely off, but the man, he was standing still, leaning forward with a hand cupped above his eyes, holding steady like a sea captain heading into a familiar storm. All right, one more and then do a little questions. So this is the, the last chapter, which uh, I was saying earlier. I heard John, Jonathan Franzen speak in, uh, a while back, and he said that if, uh, if a book has, if, if there's anything you can't tell about a book that has a spoiler, then it must not be a very good story. And so I like the idea that if you can read the end and still be a book worth pursuing, then, uh, then maybe you've actually done something. So I'll give you a little, a little backstory. I meet some characters in here who are also trying to find a place to live. And they're doing all these, uh, these antics of like dressing up and, and trying to fool landlords into giving them a place to live. And, uh, and their name is uh, Jessica and Eddie. And so this is much later. I've, I've been kidnapped at this point by, by, by people who want me to be the, uh, the voice of, 
of the, the tenants who are all losing their homes in San Francisco. And now they've let me go. I woke up on the sidewalk out front of a vegan donut shop. Overhead, loudspeakers. <laughs> See, the, the, the real absurdity is the truth. That's, that's what... <laughs> what's that? Do you know that? Is there actually a vegan donut shop? Um, I think most of San Francisco... I think all of San Francisco is a vegan donut shop at this point. I'm not mopping my brow. I'm not doing a good job, right? <laughs> I woke up on the sidewalk out front of a vegan donut shop. Overhead, loudspeakers were broadcasting holiday music. How long had I been lying here? Had no one noticed or thought to help? Then I saw that the block was lined with homeless tents and shopping carts and knew that these were foolish questions. In a flash, I remembered the last episode with a giant lava lamp earthquake device and I quickly pulled out my phone and dialed the newspaper that published my work. As the line rang, I found myself debating whether or not it was a good idea to claim that rebel hippies had kidnapped me and confessed their plan to shake things up. Would anyone believe me? Did I believe me? When the line was answered, I asked for my editor. She no longer works here, an unfamiliar voice said. I started to ask why, but decided instead to give my account of how I found myself in the unwanted role of messenger of protest. Does this involve celebrities who want to be president? The guy asked with an exasperated sigh. And when I told him no, he replied, all right, well, uh, was there a cat in the room? Because if there was a cat, then we could definitely use that. <laughs> I hung up. A woman came out of the donut shop and for a moment the holiday music got louder. It was like an explosion inside my head. I grabbed my ears and doubled over. I wondered if while being held hostage, I'd been barraged with Christmas songs as a form of torture. Then I realized that no, that had just been regular everyday life since Halloween. <laughs> I grabbed a cab back to my flat. It was only eight blocks, but I didn't have it in me to walk. The cabbie got lost three times, and when it finally arrived, he demanded a fat tip. I began to protest, and he yelled, this isn't Uber. I managed to jump out as his tires squealed, and he fishtailed into traffic, only to find my door plastered with so many eviction notices that the handle was a barely visible mound beneath the paper. I took out my keys and used one to slice through. Upstairs, I looked at the boxes of all my packed things. The flat seemed small and foreign, and in it I felt like a caged animal. I began pacing until all I could do was scream. As loud as I could, I screamed like I'd never screamed before. Then I screamed again. And when I was done, all I wanted to do was curl up in that silence and hermetically seal myself off. But that was impossible. My home was mine no more, and that's when I saw, outside the window, the burn was coming in fast. It looked like an inverted storm cloud, consuming everything in its path. I'll tell you about the burn in a moment. Whether I liked it or not, this era of my life was now at an end. I thought back on all over coffee of the last 12 years of my work, and while in my bones I knew I'd given my all, there was still more to say. For example, I wanted to talk about how each of us has our own version of San Francisco, a portrait that is formed on the day we arrive and that, as the years go by, we hold up as the one true representation of the city. But because it's a portrait of our own making, it's different from everyone else's and therefore inherently false. Which is why I know that what I'm about to say is surely just another distortion. That maybe the only true nature of San Francisco is one of change, a boomtown, where dreams are tested and lives are remade. Which is the very reason why so many of us love it here. 
and why to complain about it changing is like going to a heavy metal concert and bitching about the music being too loud. I shook my head to myself. It was a clever but one-dimensional idea because there was another side, a counter-argument that said not all change can or should be tolerated, which I instantly recognized as true. Then the issue then was about drawing lines between progress and stability, between tolerance and rules. Clearly, I was still sorting out these lines, as we all were, but it didn't matter. Time was up. Beyond my window, the buildings were gone. In their place was surely something new, but all I could see was a blinding white of nothingness. And so, with only a few minutes left, what really did I want to say? Did I want to go out on a snark? A burst of showmanship? A loving farewell? All three would have been nice. Except now the burn was at the window, consuming the edges as if they were a lit fuse. So I decided just to say thank you. I had been 21 when I'd come to San Francisco to make my name, and now I was 43. I'd had the opportunity to wander the streets, draw corners of buildings, and scribble odd quips that readers mistook for overheard conversations. I'd expressed my vision of San Francisco and was lucky enough to have others appreciate it. I had succeeded. My dream, along with my version of the city, had been fulfilled. But now the walls were completely gone and the edges of the floor were being eaten away. Only a small island of hardwood planks remained beneath my feet. As I watched them disintegrate, I felt surprisingly calm, exhausted for sure, but in truth, also a bit relieved. Because as this last piece fell away, I knew this wasn't just my story, but the story of every person who has ever wanted their version of their world to stay the same. It was time to let go, time to move on, on to the next dream. So I want to talk about the, the burns for a moment, which is, like, if you see the cover of the book, there's this little white, white spot. And so one of the challenges for me, especially for this story, was how to draw for it. Because All Over Coffee was about pairing these moody images of the city with these enigmatic pieces of text. And, and for me, they were about disparate elements. You, you, you gave this sort of feeling, this emotional thing, and then you gave this little scene, and it was up to you, the reader, to fill in the blank. And it was, my idea was I was leaving space for you, the reader. And these weren't sequential pieces, they were one-offs. So when I set to writing a narrative, it changed the dynamic of the storytelling. Suddenly I had this story I was telling about a character that was being evicted. And so how do I draw for that? I couldn't draw for it in the same way. And so there are two theme, visual themes in this book, and the first, are discarded elements. So everything that you see are these objects that I found on the street. I'd be walking along and I'd say, like, oh, there's a, randomly, across the street from our place, there was a chair with a pair of shoes and a blanket sitting on it. And I just thought, you know, there's, this is a beautiful visual metaphor. So I just stopped and I drew that. And so I began seeking out these sort of neglected, uh, rejected objects. But then as I began writing, I thought, I, I need more than that. And the idea is that People had identified my drawings with San Francisco and, and this sort of era of San Francisco, and I had identified it as well. And I realized with this change of even my perspective of my success and what I was doing, and if I was ending the series, I couldn't really look at the city the same way anymore, which meant I didn't really want to draw it like that anymore. And I decided, it felt a little heavy-handed at first, but I think it made for a really beautiful metaphor, which is I began putting these burns into the drawings which means I allowed these areas to be eaten away. And this is a good example of one where sort of, I did, a, I went back, this is a really early site that I had drawn 
in one of the first strips of Oliver Coffee, and I went back and drew it again, but instead of finishing it, I made it look like the, the, the page had been set on fire. And so as the book progresses, these drawings just disappear until we're left with nothing but one last little piece. And so that idea of the burn coming in, it's, I, I, at one point in the story, I look up and I realize that it's not a cloud in the sky, but a burn coming. And I don't understand what it means, but it begins to consume my entire world. And so that, that idea of understanding my perspective of San Francisco had to change. I had to get over my own personal version of it and, and let the city define itself rather than me dictate what I thought it should be. My vision, my vision was changing, my intellectual vision, my, my, my actual vision. And so I, I thought it was a great way to just sort of end that book with simultaneously something optimistic and hopeful, which is, you know, what's more beautiful than having a dream come true? Being able to have another come true. And that, that is a wonderful life, right? Like to say, yeah, it's not sad to put this to bed. I can, I can go out and make something else. And then blank slate. Tabla rasa, empty page, begin again. Uh, there's, there's something else I want to talk about, but let's take some questions about this book first. Yeah. You had asked kind of broadly, was that passage you read absurd enough? And I have to know for a fact that when you wrote and put it in the paper, the passage about the guy sitting in the box, oh, right. people wrote and said, that should, did that really happen? Exactly. So that, that's, and, thank you for bringing and, that up. But, but I want to actually have you also talk about the fact that maybe you were trying to go more absurd because the absurdity was so real that people didn't even realize it was absurd. And then talk about we potentially prescient with the very, very first chapter, which is chapter zero, about the airplane and mm. what happens to people who don't maybe have enough and people that have more. Well, I'll, I'll talk about the, the guy jumping into the box. So I... You know, I wrote that first chapter about being in a cafe and then and got the email saying that we think that this is very, you're hitting the right tenor. And so I wrote the chapter about the guy jumping in the box and I thought, oh, that's pretty clever. It's funny, right? It's a great, it's a great metaphor. We're, we're selling boxes for a million dollars. And the day it published, I got all of these emails saying, did that really happen? <laughs> and what it showed me was oh, we live with a level of absurdity from day to day that gets ratcheted up on, in small increments that we don't realize that it's built to this sort of fever pitch. We take the fever pitch as normal. And that it was my job then to, I had to keep amping it up. Like, there, I had booksellers writing to me, um, I actually I had a reviewer write to me and apologize because they had labeled it as fiction. <laughs> And he said, I'm so sorry, you know, your, your review went out and today and, and I, you know, I've meant, and I was like, it's not a memoir. This is really weird. They, I, like, I must have blown it because if you really think this, this is a memoir, and that's the thing, like, you know, the boulder dropping from the sky and rippling people out hundreds of miles through the land, and maybe some of it was being in the newspaper, but even in book form, there was this sort of a suspended reality that happens, and, uh, and so, you know, after the, the box piece published, I had to just keep ratcheting it up. And that's why eventually I, you know, I get kidnapped and, and like a version of me comes from the future. And there's just, I had to keep saying, how can I make this ridiculous? Uh, the Prussians, I would have to read the, the chapter. Are there any? There, yeah. So you're asking me to read that? You should. Okay, all right. Request. Request, okay. So this, is, this became the... This is what I, my version of an introduction. <laughs> You'll understand more in a moment. 
Imagine you're on an airplane. It's a long flight, international, crossing an ocean. It can be to anywhere. You decide. Pick someplace good, a place you love or have always dreamed of seeing. You've already boarded, stowed your luggage, fastened your seatbelt, and suffered the safety video. The plane has taken off and the cabin lights have dimmed. Maybe you've read a few pages of a novel or maybe you've dialed up a movie, but either way, you've settled in and fallen asleep. Now everything is shaking. You open your eyes to see a stewardess with her hand on your shoulder. Excuse me, she is saying. Her eyes are intense and hard. Is there a problem, you ask? Groggy, confused, you lurch forward and look around. Rows of your fellow passengers are sitting peacefully, most with blankets tucked up to their chins. In the aisle, there appears to be an especially long line for the restrooms, but that doesn't seem worthy of concern. I said, excuse me, the stewardess says again, and this time she grabs a fistful of your shirt. You need to get up. What, you ask, why? But she has already unbuckled your seatbelt and is pulling you to your feet. She is remarkably strong. You need to go, the stewardess says, and as she tugs you into the aisle, a new passenger slides into your seat. Without a word, this person kicks off their shoes, reaches into the seat back compartment, even takes out the book you had started reading, and settles in. <laughs> this makes you angry, but when you turn to give the stewardess a piece of your mind, she shoves you hard and you go stumbling down the aisle. You try to regroup, but she keeps shoving you until you're at the front of the plane, where another stewardess is turning the handle to the door. You want to scream, wait, but then the door opens and a blast of cold air rushes in. And shockingly, you find you can still breathe. And even more shockingly, no one else on the plane seems to care. The guy sitting right there in the emergency exit row, he just pulls his blanket a little tighter and slides the courtesy sleeping mask over his eyes. Please, the stewardess says, don't make this any harder than it needs to be and she motions to the open door. Outside you see only blackness, maybe some white-gray clouds far below, but otherwise, nothing. The stewardess, frustrated by your unwillingness to move, rolls her eyes, as if every second of your continued unwanted presence is an egregious and personally offensive violation of not just man's law, but God's as well. Seeing that you're one of those entitled types who won't go without a reason, though, she takes a deep breath and says, Listen, the market has changed. We can now charge five times what you're paying for your seat, which means you have to get out. But it's mid-flight, you say, and I've already paid for my ticket. Well, you were only renting, she says, and we own. This is just the way things are, and she pushes you out the door. So I, I wrote that about midway through uh, doing the series because it was, it, it, you know, it's a different, it's a different person. It's putting you in that, that first person. Imagine that you're in this situation. And, uh, and I think it makes a great intro because it sort of gets you in the seat of like, oh shit, what's going on here? I'm being pushed out the door. But interestingly, the, the week that this book launched is the week that the uh, United, was it United? Uh, the, the guy had been dragged off the United plane. Um, and so there was this real, so the, the prescience is sort of like, wait a minute, this is uh, kind of what I was talking about. Like, we're literally being dragged off our seats that we paid for. And, um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I like that there's that sort of cultural, contemporary cultural reference for that situation. Anybody have any questions? Yeah? Can you speak more maybe on how you come to terms with the relationship with the arts community within the Bay Area, within San Francisco, particularly? You know, I think last time I saw your work was at the Monster Art Drawing Rally from Southern Exposure about two years ago, but now with like Minnesota Street Project and this influx of capital and some of these other private organizations that are coming up that are meant to be for community arts, like how you've been able to come to terms with that or how you feel your relationship is in the city and if you still feel the same 
willingness to be a part of it, or if there's kind of this constant, constant conflict between the two. Well, you know, and, and I will preface it with it's just my point of view, right? It's my opinion, which is, which is, you know, a, outrageously biased by my own whatever desires or lack of fulfillment of those desires which is um, I've I've never felt that San Francisco was an art town um, you know if, if you look you know histor historically San Francisco has been known for many things but you know the the only real there's sort of two art movements that I can think of there's the Bay Area figurative movement from sort of mid-century which which I adore uh, and you know, there's sort of the mission school, but I think that is, that's a very, you know, it's mild in terms of, it has it didn't make a huge impact in ter terms of the art world. Yes, but, yeah, but I think that in, in, what I'm talking about is sort of on the history books, if we were to write our decades out and say, what, what is this city remembered for? Art doesn't really come up. And, and it's just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of small dog mentality, like the, the running around the big dog yapping, wanting to be sort of taken seriously. And, uh, and in turn, what often happens is that the local art scene gets ignored because of that, because they're so concerned about uh, being taken seriously on the world stage that they're not just kind of kicking back and being comfortable at home. Now, you know, when I launched All Over Coffee, I, I got very much rejected from sort of the... The, the contemporary art scene because essentially I was, well, I was publishing for one so that automatically, and, and I was being representational in my drawings. So they just called me an illustrator, which, you know, I understand. And because, you know, by definition, an illustration is that which appears in, in a published work. But for me, the idea of an illustrator is one who works commercially, who is commissioned to do work for somebody else's aims. And that wasn't how I was working. So, you know, fine, okay, they, they weren't interested in me. But, you know, 10 years later, the museums were more interested in me. And so it, it really is about sort of, uh, it, you know, the, the tides change very quickly. Now, in terms of how I want to keep working there, I, I don't, I think that there is a strong underground community. I think there's a lot of people who care about art and a lot of people who want to make art. But it also feels like... Uh, it's, it's where people go to find themselves. I mean, that's something, that's San Francisco, right? It's not necessarily where they go to, to, to do it for the rest of their lives. So I, I wrestle with that, certainly. I mean, I, I think I've, I've built a name up there, but um, I'm also interested in not just being a San Francisco artist. Yes? I'm thinking about, you know, the real versus surreal and how the lines are kind of blurred. And I was wondering about the burns, uh, particularly if there was a parallel drawn with, um, I know there was um, a little bit of news for a while in San Francisco about buildings perhaps being intentionally burned for money, insurance purposes, property value purposes, whatever the case may be. Um, and I was wondering if, if that parallel was fresh in your mind when you were Oh, uh, it, it wasn't, but I, but I do know what you're talking about. I, you know, I don't know that there have been any cases that have been proven to be arson for that sense, although there's certainly been some suspect. There, there was the building on Mission and what, 25th, right. right? And some people died in that because of the, the sign had been put in place where the, uh, the fire escape couldn't work. Um, and the landlord was suspected, but I, I don't know if that was proven to be the case. 
Um, no, it, it wasn't. Although it's interesting that you say it because there's a handful of large buildings that are, are burned that are just sort of looming and, um, and they take forever to deal with. I don't know if it's insurance or what, I, I, I can't speak to that, but I, I drove by one just a couple days ago or like right before we left town and, and I was thinking about it, I'm like, that building's been there for a year. And how interesting that in this market where there's so much talk about you know, real estate and, and space, but to speak, to take that one step further, there's a lot of empty storefronts. There's a lot of vacant commercial space that isn't being used because you have landlords who, who own the, these properties who don't necessarily need to make money off of them. You know, they're paying taxes based on whatever old, old numbers and so, and they're just letting them languish. And, I, and that's something that's being talked about in City Hall right now, which is taxing those, those spaces if they languish. So, you know, it's funny how, how on one hand space is a premium and then on the other you have all these spaces that, that uh, that people are just like, yeah, yeah, I can do whatever I want. With. I don't care if I put people in them. But I, I want to say one last thing, which is that it's funny. I, I get a lot of these questions, and it's just not my specialty, right? right, right? And, right. and inadvertently, no, it's okay. I'm not. I'm not chastising you. I'm, but inadvertently, I found myself like, oh shit, I have to learn about at least a little bit about this because I keep getting asked, and uh, and it was the precarious role that I found myself in. You know, how can, I, how can I be a creative person and talk about an, an emotional experience in, in such a political and social, with, with a political and social issue? And, uh, and, and it it's, continues to be difficult for me to come out and, and talk about it in that way. There was one, yeah? Me? Yeah. Um, but I hate to do this to you again. <laughs> um, so I'm really interested in this interface between the ownership class and the share economy. And I'm also interested in the Grenville Towers in London where the burning of that building made you really think that to be a poor person in right. this political climate is to really have good analysis of risk assessment so that to be poor, it's your responsibility to know whatever you're involved in, what's the risk you're going to die in that because that's where they want you, right? The ownership class. Right, I understand. So I don't know if it's true. I'm proposing it to you. No, well, it's been, right. I mean, I've read pieces about that. Oh, well... Okay, I mean, here's the, okay, I, let me answer that in a, in a roundabout way, which is to say that I grew up um, in my, my father, I grew up in a very blue-collar family, um, two parents who were entrepreneurs, came from very meager means, who built up a middle-class life, taught me a good work ethic. I grew up with my father renovating burned-out buildings and dilapidated buildings, restoring them, and either selling them or renting them out. So I grew up basically with a landlord father <laughs> um, and still and have one. So my, in terms of my sympathies, I, I, you know, owning, owning buildings, I'd like to own my own home. I have no, the, the irony is that I could envision a situation in which I'd buy a home and have to evict somebody in order to move into my unit. Because let's say there's two floors and, that, and it's both, and you know, an owner move-in is illegal eviction. And here's the sense where, you know, you pay them, you, you help them move, you, you can do it humanely or you can be a dick, right? Like, and, and I would hope that I'd choose the humane route, especially after this experience. But my point is, is this is the thing that I've had to go out and sort of walk the line with for months now, is that I'm not out here saying like, oh, it's just so horrible, screw the landlords, you know, everybody who rents gets to stay. It's, um, it's, there's, there are gray areas, 
And, uh, and it's really just about sort of abiding by the law and not trying to screw people over. So in terms of poverty, and I can't speak on that level because it's just not my specialty. But I don't mind saying that like, I, I am sort of in between. There was, yeah? Have you kept track of your old home at all? And what's your relationship like now to that like, physical neighborhood? Let, let's say that um, I'm unable to speak about that at the moment. <laughs> Under advice of... No. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Although I will talk about the neighborhood, which is that, that we used to be able to walk out our door and a block away was my favorite cafe and I knew most of the baristas there. I knew a lot of people who frequented there. I used to joke that it was my living room. I would have business meetings there. I would... Every day I would leave, because I worked at home, so you know, my studio was in my flat. Every day I would go for a walk. I knew lots of people in the neighborhood just to say hi, to nod. You know, I had lots of places that I frequented, the places I bought my groceries, etc. And I don't have that now. And I, I feel like I lost my community. And I was never really a person to, to use that word before. Sort of like cringed at the use of the word community. Um, but that's me. Uh, so, you know, it, but I think it's all of us too, when something touches home, then we understand what it really means. Like you're like, oh, like that's what empathy is. You know, you have an experience that allows you to then understand something a little more deeply. And, you know, I go back there now, and what's great is I can see the things that I didn't like. Like, oh, it's a pain in the ass to park. I have a garage now, because I kind of live out in the middle of nowhere. So, and I can have a garage, but couldn't park before. You know, little things like, and, and I think that I'm personally trying to enjoy the things that I didn't like to help. But, it, but I do miss it. I do miss the just going out, going for walks, saying hello to people, and getting that sort of social interaction because I have a very, um, I have a very private practice. And, and being in the heart of the city allowed me to, to sort of have that balance of being able to get social interaction very easily uh, and then go back to work. Which, which I function very well in, and now it's more challenging for me. And, and, and it's, it's been a challenge for the past couple of years. It's taken, I'm, I don't know that I'm still adjusted. There was one, yeah? Uh, I just want to talk about your process. Like when you get up, is there a certain neighborhood that you think about before you go to that neighborhood? Or you just, do you just go randomly out for a walk and then you get inspired by something that you see and you put down your chair? Well, that's no, a great question because um, the, the process with Oliver Coffee was always that the writing came first. So I'm an obsessive note taker. I, just, I carry a notebook around with me everywhere and I'm always jotting down little ideas and, and those ideas can turn into things or sometimes they take days, sometimes they take years to develop. Um, and what I would do is I would go out in the mornings or the evenings when the light was really beautiful because I'm into, in terms of my drawings, I'm talking about Oliver Coffee, not necessarily this book. Um, I was interested in formal qualities. This is the interesting thing of being, so, you know, everybody fell in love with my, my cityscape drawings. But for me, I wasn't thinking about drawing the, the beautiful buildings of San Francisco. I was paying attention to light, shadow, form, composition. I was thinking about everything completely formal in terms of a creative sense. And the reason that I took out all the cars was because I just wanted to know, oh, how does that building meet the street? Like, I want to draw the environment. Um, and we'll talk about people in a moment, but uh, in terms of people in, within the drawings. But so I would go out, I'd go for walks, and just I'd have all these sort of stories bouncing around in my head, and I would just see a corner. I'd see this great light that I wanted to render, and 
either it would pop into my head in that moment or I would, I would have something that would come into mind while I was drawing that then I would write and pair with it. And I try not to let myself overanalyze it, which, if you know me, is a huge task because <laughs> pretty much overthinking is what they'll put on my tombstone. Um, he's still thinking. Of, he'll still think. He's still thinking about this. Is actually what they'll write. Um, and the, and and I again, it was that disparity. And, and so, and to explain that a little bit more, when I created Oliver Coffee, I had about 15 drawings. And I created because I was writing this long form piece that wasn't working. And so I decided to gut all the little stories that weren't working in the novel. And, um, and I printed them out and I did it like David Bowie style. I like cut out each sentence and I, I laid all these drawings out and I just started putting the sentences with each drawing. And it was amazing to me how this sentence with this drawing, it felt totally different. And then I'd, I'd move it together and suddenly it seemed like it made sense. And I could work then to intellectually come to a reason why it made sense, but it just happened. And, and that was the premise in which I built Oliver Coffee. So when I did this book, it became the opposite, right? I had this story now, and then I was drawing for it, which was a very different, different situation. And that's ultimately what gave me the idea of like, oh, my vision of San Francisco is changing. I'm not looking at the city the same way anymore. I'm not walking out just looking for the beautiful moments and then deciding what to write or like or pulling a story like they're not coming together in the same way now i have the story that's fueling me oh this is really that has literally infected me to think differently which means now i see differently and then you know and just the, the creative thought process potentially the overthinking led to the idea of understanding that oh my vision has changed how do i represent that to the viewer there was one yes I'll tell you two stories, which is one, ever since I, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a cartoonist. You want to be a cartoonist? A cartoonist. So when I was a little kid, I, I wanted to make cartoons um, and, and comics. I just loved them. But uh, I didn't read comic books. I loved newspaper cartoons. I loved single panel cartoons. And I loved stories. Um, and and uh, so I entered college and I entered to be an oil painter. And I was doing oil painting. And after my first year, once you hit second year, you could basically define your own curriculum. And so I was doing a double major in drawing and painting. And, and the way that worked is that you met every two weeks for critique. And in that, those two weeks, you, you just worked in, on your work. And you'd have to show up. And you'd have to sort of justify what you've been working on for those two weeks. And about midway through the first semester of my sophomore year, I was not working on my paintings at all. And it's literally the night before a painting crit, and I'm going through my sketchbook looking for ideas that I can lay down on canvas to somehow look like I've been painting for two weeks, which obviously is not going to happen. But I had this dawning moment because my sketchbook was filled with all these drawings of, of I, was like, I was making up sort of just scenes, but I was writing uh, like one act plays. And I was writing all these short stories. And I realized that it wasn't that I was lazy and not working, it was just that I was lazy and not working on my paintings. And there's a big difference, right? Like I was still working prolifically. I was filling up you know, a sketchbook in two or three weeks. And I thought, this is what you're actually doing. This is what you love. And, and, and then it sort of occurred to me, right, you've always loved comics and, and cartoons, but really what hit me was you're drawing and writing. 
this is the thing you love to do. And so then I realized the basis of my work was words and images, whatever that meant. And, and the only thing I had to attach myself to was comics. Because there was no, even in contemporary art, there was no sort of solid genre in which allowed storytelling. Unless, again, you were an illustrator or, or you had to fit yourself into some other mold. I wanted to write my own stories and draw my own pictures, whatever that meant. And so I immediately, I started working with the theater department and the writing department because I wanted to work with people who were doing multimedia and doing, uh, and, and telling stories. So it's, it's a very long answer, but I've sort of built up over the years just from that very basis. Like, I always return to the idea of text and image, whatever that means. And so while I might do big drawings with one or two words on them and, it, and an image, or write, you know, what I have a new book, like I wrote a novel that has drawings in it. You know, so it's like sort of which, which side is driving first? Is the art side driving? And then, then the images come in and say, how did the images work with that? Or did the, the words drive? And then how do, we, how do I work with images there? And so um, I really like that sort of back and forth play. And I always, if I return to the base of words, images, then I feel like I can, I can push and pull. Those are really malleable uh, mediums. Is that... I, I never answer anything directly. <laughs> um, I'll take one more, and then I, I just want to talk about this for a few minutes. Anybody have anything else? Okay. That, that's what I'll talk about now. So I think the great thing about the idea of onto the next stream is there really is an next stream. This, this book actually came about in the middle of another project that I had started in 2010, which was that uh, I was getting tired of the short form of All Over Coffee. And I, I, had, I had written a novel. A novel had been commissioned by the Book Club of California, and I sort of screwed it all up because I, I, I tried to just over-edit to death, which is a problem for me. Um, and I ultimately shelved that project and took some time off and then said, all right, I want to, I want to approach long form again, but uh, having learned some mistakes from having done one book. And so I wanted to write an illustrated novel. I wanted to, so if we take the idea of the graphic novel, right? Um, how many of you read graphic novels? So do you, do you know? So the graphic novel essentially came out of comics for adults. It became the, the word that we used to describe, uh, and I'm, I don't mean like, you know, uh, erotica, I mean just like mature adult fiction. But I wanted to take it from another angle, which is rather than coming from comics into literature, I wanted to say begin in literature and move into something with, with images. Now the, the, the history of the illustrated book is that the images were essentially uh, an addition. You know, an illustrated book, at least if we go back into the, the, the early 1900s, is if you had a successful book, the publisher would then commission drawings to go along with it. So they could, they could produce another edition, which they could make more beautiful and sell for more money. And so what that meant is that the images were, they could be thrown away. They didn't need to be there. And I think that's ultimately why the images have sort of faded out, because they're expensive to produce, and, and there's a redundancy. The, the, the analogy I like to use is if you think of a, a children's book and there's a, the boy climbing the mountain. If, if you read on page one, the boy climbs the mountain with his sword to slay the dragon. And you turn the page and there's a drawing of a boy on a mountain with his sword and the dragon. And in my mind, that's redundant. It steals from the reader's imagination. One of the beautiful things that prose does is it allows us to create that world in our head and it becomes ours. And that's why a movie of, you know, of a book always fails in some respect 
because it never lives up to the images we've already created. I didn't want to do that. So I thought, how do I create, how do I begin by writing a story? How do I, how do I then put images into it? And so this book is about a, a creative per, a person who inadvertently becomes an artist. Who is, it's the, one of the questions that I am always asked is, where do you get your ideas? Past 15 years, it's one of the questions over and over. Nobody's asked it today, so I was hoping it would kind of come up, <laughs> and then I could run off that, but it didn't, which is... So, um, but the idea, it's very difficult to explain. How do you get ideas? How do you, how do you translate the world into art? And I think On to the Next Room does that. You know, I think I talked about taking that experience and turning it into a, piece of, to, to a book. But I wanted to write the story of a character who has these experiences and then in turn makes art. And so the drawings in this book are made by the character. And part of the story that you're, you're reading is to, under, is to see what led him to make these drawings and then to understand what they are. So in the beginning, there's this that same sort of disparate relationship that functioned in All Over Coffee. But as the pages go on, that we understand why he's made them. And my goal started out to be to write a story that didn't need the drawings. Could it still stand alone as a solid story? And then, oh, we get to see the wonderful things that he's made. So this is actually the last event for On to the Next Dream. I get to take about two months off, and then I start promoting this book. So I decide today was a good day to say, all right, I'm going to take a break from that dream, and this is the next one. It's called Close Enough for the Angels, and it is a significantly different object than this guy, because this guy was about a year, and this was seven years. Um, but, you know, when I talk about moving on to the next dream, it's really about having finished this and being able to put it out into the world and move on to the next thing. Yeah, anything else before I actually let you, let you go? You what, really? Does everybody still want to sit here and listen to me read? Am I allowed to stay? I mean, I'd like to read something <laughs> I can never tell if anybody's been like, sure, you can stay for another drink, kid, like, when really they just want you to go home. Um, all right, so I had a passage, but it's, it's a longer one, so um, I, I, I'll just read, I'll just read a, like a page to give you a sense of, the voice is different, so it's going to take me a moment to sort of switch out of, like, we, I've been reading from one book, right, and this is a different, it's still first person. Um, actually, rather than read this, so the, the main character's name is, uh, is Emmett Hopper. So this is about, so I'll read two pages, it's about five minutes, because these are like two and a half minutes a page. My brother Brian and I grew up in a small rural town in northwestern Pennsylvania, a place we'd like to claim as Sadsbury, Sadsbury for its easy ability to mock, but was, at least as far as the U.S. Postal Service was concerned, just humorless Craw Crawford County. Our family had a mulch farm, the result of my father's attempt at an apple orchard gone awry. It spent the family savings on five acres of our neighbor's trees, only have an exceptionally wet spring give rise to a deadly fungus. The leaves became infected with scabby brown warts, as did the eventual fruit, and by late summer, all the trees were dead. Brian and I were seven at the time, and we worked alongside our father, dragging what he called the dead soldiers into a trench beside the barn. To us, it looked like the embodiment of failure, but to my father, that pile was a vision of opportunity. 
For next to nothing, he let the entire county dump their grass clippings, tree trimmings, and horseshit into the trench, which he made progressively larger with a backhoe, then turned into the phoenix of his next enterprise. By the following spring, he was selling what became known in the illustrious circles of the compost world as the hopper blend. <laughs> Brian and I were the only identical twins around, which was enough to make us local celebrities. So I guess it's fair to say that my delusions of grandeur were being fostered long before taking that blue ribbon in the abstract painting category, which was actually the chapter I was going to read to you. Um, when we were young, four, five, six years old, the county fair organizers would put us on stage just because we looked alike. Our mother would dress us in matching outfits and would ablib some scene from one of our favorite TV shows, usually Hawaii Five-0, with Brian, of course, playing McGarrett, the Jack Lord version and ending with one of us accidentally mooning the audience. We never planned any of it, and we'd just get up on stage and go, acting out what my father liked to call the Super Bowl and the box. All it took was one good shake and instant mayhem. I wasn't the only one with big dreams, though. Brian took our celebrity status to heart even more than I did. As the more gregarious twin, hence is always getting to play McGarrett, he taught himself to play the guitar and eventually decided to be an actor. And so within days of graduating high school, the two of us caught a bus to California. The plan was, Brian would be in movies and I would paint. Instead, we found ourselves in a band. It was LA in the 80s and began, with a dr began on a lark. Drunk and underage in a bar during an open mic, Brian climbed up on stage to impress some girl, and of course, I went along. Then the next thing I knew, we were partnered with three other guys booking shows, and I was the lead singer with my face on an album cover. I still don't know what we were exactly at the end of punk, the beginning of mainstream hair bands, just weird enough to make a video for, for what was then a breakout cable network called MTV, and just pop enough to land a single on the bottom of the billboard charts. We called ourselves fur trading, and our one hit was the beginning is the end. That song propelled us from the small club opening band to stadium headliner. It was all a joke, at least to Brian and me. Lots of tight pants, pyrotechnics, and running around on ramps, which we did for about a year until Brian quit. The label had us under contract to cut a second album, but on the first day of recording, Brian showed up at the studio and announced that he had landed a role on a TV show. He just shrugged and said, sorry, then turned and left. And I thought, if Brian can make it as an actor, then I can make it as a painter, so I followed him right out the door. It was a shitty thing to do. The other guys, Barry, John, and Ezra, they were real musicians who had dreamed all their lives of making it in the music business, whereas Brian and I, we couldn't care less. Still, it was the right move. The Brothers Hopper had no business being in music. If we hadn't quit, I'm more than certain in due time, it would have quit us. Despite being sued by the label and our former bandmates, we managed to do the unheard of in the music industry, walk away with a little money. It wasn't much, but we were only 21, so to us, it seemed like a lot. We rented a house in Santa Monica and began what we imagined to be our real professions. But while Brian's career quickly took flight, mine sputtered and choked. There was a cabana in the backyard that I turned into a painting studio, and with Brian on set morning till night, six days a week, I passed countless hours alone in that little building pushing paint around canvas. The problem with oils is that you can endlessly revise. I had too many ideas that I kept trying to shove into each painting. I would rework a piece over and over, perfecting this, adding that, only to find each new rendition more stiff and convoluted than the last. I was determined, though. Day after day, I'd march in believing that if I just applied my farm boy work ethic, I could turn those dead apple trees into mulch gold. But the only paintings I ever finished were those too overworked to bother with anymore. And when I did allow myself a break, I still went at it. 
I sought out art galleries and hounded dealers to give me a show, but with barely more than a sketchbook of prep drawings and no premise for a unified body of paintings, no one was interested. For a year and a half it went like that, but still, I kept at it. And if not for Brian, who knows how long I would have gone on that way, because even with what happened next, it would take me four more years to finally gain my first and possibly biggest insight into what it meant to have a creative life. That the only chance I would ever have of making anything of any substance was when I didn't try. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. And we hope to see you soon.